Tonight, I'd like to speak about the promise of awakening. I've been thinking a lot about this lately because I, I did a retreat recently in Southern California about the process of awakening, and the possibility of awakening. So I started to reflect on my own practice, and which is always a work in progress. But I realized that when I started my practice, I was uh, very self-conscious, ruthlessly self-critical. My, what might be called, body of fear was very well developed. I was perfectionistic, which fed right into the strong inner critic, quite judgmental of myself and everybody else, And my perception was uh, incredibly narrow. I was shrouded by my privilege of being white in a multicultural world. And so I was a mess. And now I'm wonderful. No, I'm not wonderful. I am none of these things anymore, though. I am none of what I described. I'm not defined by any one of these things. I have every one of them, though. I am, from time to time, self-conscious, self-critical, critical of others, perfectionistic. I am... My mind is, and my perception can be quite narrow and uh, innocently shrouded by uh, things I just don't know about. But not any of these define me. And I realize that I'm not, I am not, what I've realized in practice is I am not reducible to any characterization, any description. And consequently, these experiences that uh, flow through my mind are, um, they don't bring as much suffering as they used to. They actually bring more pain. They bring a lot more reminder of the pain that is caused by falling into a case of mistaken identity, where I become identified with my judgments, identified with my inner critic or whatever it is, if I take that to be the totality of my being, it's enormous amount of suffering. It's enormously painful because it is so it is such an insult to the the grandeur that that each of us is uh, outside of these descriptions. These are thoughts, they're stories about us that can can never capture who and what we are. So I've realized that any 
idea about myself, no matter how much it seems to fit, it only fits uh, a momentary or temporary part of me that may show up from time to time. And it's incredibly relieving to, uh, to know that I'm, that I'm not defined by my moods, my emotions, my tendencies of mind, that I'm indescribable, just as you are, just as you are here right where, right where life touches you. And as I've stepped out of the, the different identities that come from, from the uh, misidentification with the different thoughts and feelings that I have, and able to see them as changing conditions, I've also come to realize in the course of, of my own practice that there really is no time. that there is, and you hear this a lot on Tuesday, there is no past in reality. Because the past is, is, just arises as a thought in this unfolding present. Called memories, regrets, replay, reminiscing, and there's no future. Realize that there really is no future. That the future just exists as a a presently arising thought form called planning and feelings of looking forward, excitement, or worry, And the truth is, I've realized that there's no present. That's another idea. It's, a, it's an idea, it's a word that gets overlaid on this, on what may be more accurately called, but even that word doesn't capture it, reality. And you could substitute the word now, but there's really no now either. Now is just another word that gets overlaid on the indescribable fullness, non-separateness of how things are. Now, while I was shrouded in my, in my ideas of self, ideas of being an insufficient self, not enough, not good enough, not accomplished enough, or not whatever it was, or the holding myself hostage when I talked about that inner critic, I carried this image, this self-image of, of perfection, of who I should be. It could never measure up to that ideal. As long as I was bound up in these ideas, I was living in time. I kept being the one who had to go from where I was I had to pass through all the obstacles here so I could get to that future when I would finally be okay. And all of that was just a painful dream of my mind. And as I mentioned before, 
I um, I don't believe that anymore, and I I don't feel defined by whatever plays through my my mind. But in the times, this is gets back to the idea that we're all works in progress. From time to time, I may incarnate in one of these little views that something's not right. I should be different than the way I am. Or the world should be different than the way. Whatever it is that that um, I get hooked to it. As I said before, it's um, there's a lot less suffering in it because it gets seen, but it's a lot more painful because it is such a contrast to the natural happiness of simply being conscious and living in the unfolding now. Forget the word now. So because this living now, I'm going to use the word because we have to talk. Because this living present is so alive, there's so much energy. I was reading today, I hope I can find it here, from a beautiful teaching from a Tibetan Lama. He says the everyday practice of, is simply to develop a complete acceptance and openness to all situations and emotions and to all people experiencing everything totally without mental reservations and blockages so that one never withdraws or centralizes into oneself. This produces a tremendous energy which is usually locked up in the process of mental evasion and general running away from life's experiences. The realization, the increasing realization that comes with meditation practice, that this unfolding present is all there is and all that you need to be happy, to be well, unleashes a, a light and a love and an, and an energy. And it's inexhaustibly entertaining. And yet it's so simple. There's not much going on, except everything. Now I say this because I used to be really, really dependent on entertainment. I am classically called a grasping type or a greed type. We are, if you know the Buddha Dharma, the, the three root causes, the Buddha expounded many times about the three root causes of suffering. Suffering in our mind and what, conti- what keeps us on a, a wheel of suffering, it just keeps going around and around. The three root causes are grasping, clinging in the mind, greed in the mind, aversion, ill will, or hatred in the mind, and delusion in the mind, either confusion, misperception, or personalizing everything you could call delusion in the mind. And each, especially just the delusion, just not seeing, confusion, misperception, 
mostly characterizes the third one. And each of us seems to be dominated by one of those three tendencies. I am clearly one who would be uh, my tendency, my conditioning. Of course, all of us live in a culture of the greed. It is a greed culture. We've all been conditioned conditioned to believe uh, that I have to have something to be happy. I have to accumulate experiences. I have to have the perfect Bay Area day. I have to I have to wake up and I have to whatever get my cappuccino or espresso drip just properly with the best coffee bought at the farmer's market or wherever. I have to have the best organic fruit, vegetables. I have to put it all together in the in an exotic maybe in a smoothie, maybe in a fruit salad. And then I have to be able to look into the eyes of my beloved and, and make mad, passionate love and then eat some more <laughs> organic fruit and then make love again. No. And then roll, roll into uh, kabuki baths for a, a massage and a hot tub and then... And then take a hike, <laughs> and then buy some new tires for my mountain bike, or <laughs> and then go help someone, <laughs> or read the Huffington Post. <laughs> and by the end of the day, having lived a linked enough pleasurable moments together, you think you're happy. Unfortunately, the perfect Bay Area day has not made anybody truly happy. It has turned us into greed types. Because every one of those experiences, although quite pleasurable, the perfect Bay Area day can be extraordinarily pleasurable. But that so-called sukkah, comfort, happiness, has an underbelly of dukkha. That pleasure is unreliable, and it leaves in its wake a feeling of space, of it ended, a sense of loss, and has conditioned in our minds again and again and again the desire for more. And that keeps us on a wheel of endlessly needing to fill the calendar, fill the refrigerator with more kale, <laughs> less iceberg lettuce. I'm sorry. I'm, just, I'm confessing my delusions. So we live in this. This is definitely a cultural thing, and maybe it's a, a universal tendency. But nevertheless, most of us are, are in spite of our cultural greed, being cultural greed types, we are dominated by one of the three poisons. And mine was greed. And so when, at, when the things were tough, my mind would start fantasizing about the next pleasurable thing. And I know I've talked here about my time in the middle of long practice periods. 
uh, one particular long practice period back in the, in the early 80s where I was practicing in a very small room for, for three months, mostly doing all my sitting and walking in a room, occasionally going out to do some walking, and even for many weeks someone would even bring me bring meals to my door, and I signed up to, to do self-retreat within the larger retreat. And I got to know this room really well. There was not much going on there, except the excessive amounts of clothes that I brought with me, more than really fit comfortably in the room. And unfortunately, the room was so small, it didn't have a closet. It just had a little doll hanging from a couple little chains and all that stuff hanging there. And when I would start to feel a little uncomfortable or regressed, which is often what happens, this kind of parallel process in retreat, I'd start looking over at the clothes and saying, hmm, wouldn't it be nice to have one of those and that color and then another? And then I'd think of all the things that, I, that needed fixing and how that was going to be so... And my mind would just start going into whatever kind of greedy fantasy. And at first... And this is where the awakening comes in. At first, I was quite uh, disgusted by seeing how automatic this, this mind that said, I have to have these things in order to be happy. When I knew from the teachings, it's, it's really the absence of that need that brings freedom. That our true home is in being open and empty with all the space in the world, which we have when our mind is not so bound up in what I think I need to be happy. And here I was just spinning out. And then, fortunately, I was far enough into this retreat where I was so so tender and so sensitive that uh, I came to a point one day where I realized, wow, I am... I. I, am, I feel so raw and vulnerable that I, in, I need, in the worst way, to be held. I just needed to be hugged and loved up. And, of course, I'm sitting in a little room here and there's nobody there to hug me. So I rolled off my little cushion onto the, off onto the other half of the, of the little cushion that, I was, that was doubling as a zabutan, this little thing we're sitting on. And I wrapped myself up with the zafu and the extra pillow and, and the pillow that I was sleeping on, wrapped myself in it, and just started to wail and wail and wail and cry. And I held myself. And then I looked around the room, saw all that stuff. And I had a, uh, an epiphany. I realized in that, in that moment that all that stuff, all that greed in the mind, was the way that I was attempting to hold myself. And there was a crack. There was a crack in the heart, and what flowed in was self-compassion that has really never left me. And really the sense of, of how everyone, no matter how, whether we fall into the greed type or the aversive type, that immediately looks to see what's wrong with everything, immediately is very discriminating and, and making sure that, that things are measuring about the way they're supposed to be and usually things are there's something wrong or the, the deluded type that just goes unconscious in some way, some measure, some shape or form, saw that all the types and all the strategies that we use are really strategies to try to bring relief 
to this extraordinary vulnerability that each of us is by virtue of being born. And that, that really stuck. That really stuck. And so now I, I still love entertainment, but, it, uh, but I don't wait for it. One, the present has become so interesting and compelling, the desire to be elsewhere and to go on to the next pleasure just doesn't have the same pull anymore. And I realize that every time I step on the, the wheel of, of waiting, hoping, expecting, I'm actually postponing being happy. And so I, I've understood a little bit more from practice. Still a greed type. Still mine, still does that. It just, I'm, I'm, in on the, I'm in on the game. I've seen through it. And I know now, as Suzuki Roshi put it, renunciation, it's not giving up the things of this world, but it's understanding that they go away, that they are insubstantial, unreliable. So this is, this is a, a fruit, and it's made it, it's made it so I, I don't uh, need to lift out of the present moment as much to find relief. And what I'm saying tonight is not unique to me. Everybody has their own version. Everybody has their own story of imperfection, but I've seen it over and over and over and over again, that if someone, if any of you, give your life over to awakening, to wake up in the midst of it all, using the very stuff of your own delusion, the stuff of your own suffering, that it is, uh, it is inevitable that your mind will clear. Everything you notice is like, rubbing, is like rubbing two sticks together. It brightens and freshens the mind. Your difficulties, in fact, become the path as much as any joyous experience that you have. In fact, I'd say that the difficulties have been that which brightens my mind even more and tenderizes my heart. And I've seen it over and over. And even in this song, I, I'm sorry to... Marlena said she's been practicing for four years. It's not an accident. There was, there was such, such clarity, such heartfulness. And when she says it's transformed her life, it may be, you may not see it on the outside, but the inside, the whole... Re- and it's not so much that we become different, but our relationship to life becomes different. We see that everything that has the nature to arise has the, has the nature to pass away. We start to be more in harmony with things the way they are, instead of being in this constant state of contention with life. And it's, I was, uh, and I know that the people who, who come forward, part of the expression of awakening is this is this generosity is this generous spirit and we have we have so many people who who want to help who want to help the support the sangha who want to uh, in or other sanghas it, it doesn't matter this is it's the fruit of of practice but you have to one has to uh, give themselves to it it's not something you do to stay in your spiritual comfort zone. It's not something you do as a hobby. It's not something you just do on Tuesday nights. And I know I'm, I, I don't think there's anybody here that just does it on Tuesday night. 
I don't think. But it's something that, at least the possibility is, is that you make it, make practice, make awakening the hub around which you do everything in your life. And no one has to even know. It's really invisible. It is, but people will know. There is a fragrance. There's a fragrance to someone who practices non-harming every day. There is a, a gift that's being given that other people don't have to be afraid of you and, and that you, people will just want to be around you. If you're, if you're kind and uh, harmonious in your speech and you're not telling lies and you're not gossiping so much, uh, you're not, um, yeah, not talking in the bushes, as we say, uh, talking about third parties all the time. There's a fragrance to that. There's a fragrance to, uh, to there's, a, an emanate, there's an emanation that comes from, uh, from keeping things simple, from not needing to either complicate your mind or complicate your life with endless strategies about how to get where you want to go. That you know that your true home is in openness. And so then you can... You have that, that uh, transmission of being settled back into the present moment. Not darting in every conversation. Not needing to get on to the next thing or the next person. And I know people here who look you in the eye and they say, Hi, as Ramdas used to say, Hi, I'm in here, are you in there? <laughs> and... W- of course, as a culture, we've lost that. I, I, one of my, the people who come, came to meet with me uh, yesterday in my uh, city office on uh, Union Street, I didn't see him in the cafe where I was going to pick up some, uh, some water and a little sandwich. And he saw me scanning the room, and I was looking for one person in this whole cafe that was talking to someone, that was actually making contact, something intimate, something that had texture, something that wasn't just virtual. And there was not one person except when I scanned back, I saw him looking at me, <laughs> nodding. <laughs> and we had, we had a, a very precious moment of not so much being critical, but I think being happy that there were t- we were two people looking at each other. But I also felt sad, and that, that's the trend, is disconnection. And so somebody who's actually interested in being present, it's kind of a, <laughs> it's a kind of novelty, <laughs> but it doesn't have to be. I actually think more and more people are, uh, are re- at least from time to time, resisting the tendency to just get buried and lost. And in, in, as, uh, as Dingo Kensi Rinpoche, who I read from, from mental evasion and distraction. And, um, and it's really possible to get comfortable here and not have to go somewhere else. And that, of course, means that we have to open 
to how painful it is to be present, too. Because if we're open, of course we're opening to the joy of being and the indescribable entertainment of presence. But even pain, in some ways, is enter- not, entertaining is not the right word, but it's, it's juicy. And I, I know, I, I think I just talked about this a few weeks ago here, but in the course of my practice, I used to be, when I would meet someone, in fact, my first year leading a group back in the early 80s, somebody, there was someone who came who was quite, uh, quite differently abled and quite disfigured and, and really a lot of, uh, probably a big struggle with her, her life, just dealing with her, her disability. She came up the stairs of the place that I was doing the sitting group, and I took one look at her. This is, I, I was, I didn't realize that I was so uh, afraid, but I immediately tensed up. And I can say today that now, the, the worse it is, the more I open. And I don't say that with any pride. It's just that that's what happens. And the most, uh, the most painful thing is that which quiets my mind the most. That's which tenderizes my heart. And now it's, it's as though I, I fall in love every day. And this is the promise of awakening. Everybody, the process of awakening. I don't declare to be awake or any kind of attainment, but I know after 40 years of, of nurturing the, the sense of presence, things have happened. I, do, I, don't, I feel differently. Four years, 40 years, doesn't matter. Just notice. Of course, you don't want to be busy evaluating. The Dalai Lama suggests that maybe you can evaluate whether you're opening or awakening. Maybe evaluate over 10 or 20 years. In the short run, we don't know what should be happening anyway, but you can tell. You can tell that your perspective has changed, your relationship to, to your own pain, the pain of others, your relationship to things, to people, to situations. I'm actually better, in spite of my railing against politicians, you know, certain kinds of politicians a few weeks ago, I'm actually a lot better. <laughs> I actually see that every one of those things that I, every, my whole list of things that I, that I rail against, the narrow-mindedness and the selfishness and the, and the, and the uh, lack of empathy and all those things that I, I attribute to the other side, they're all, they're all in me. They are, I have an aspect of all those things. So I'm easier about it. I still rail, but everything has gotten uh, more workable. And, that, and I think it's true for many people in this room, and I know you resonate, the ones who have practiced. And the ones who haven't, it's a good thing to jump into. You won't be sorry. It's one of those things, every time you sit, you'll notice you're never sorry you sat. I don't know anybody that's ever sorry they sat. Well, if you sit and sit and sit and sit and sit, or pay attention, pay attention, you'll never be sorry for any of those moments. Those are only moments that put drops in the bucket of more freedom, more ease of well-being, more compassion. And why not? What else do we have to do? 
What else can we offer the world? I always share the passage from Sri Nisargadatta. He says, the world is the way it is because people are the way they are. As long as people are the way they are, the world will be the way it is. And if we want a peaceful world, a loving world, a responsive world, a, an awake world, we have to be peaceful, responsible, awake people. It's not something you can impose. It's something that starts within each of us. So I know that you're, because, you know, the fact that you've come here tonight, you know that, that, um, that freedom is possible, it's an inside job, or do you know that it's possible? It's not just a, a little band-aid for our, for our uh, busy minds. There's a, there's a great capacity to be a, a real gift to um, yourself and to the beings, first and foremost, the people who have to live around you every day, and then to all beings everywhere, because everything ripples. Nobody lives apart from anybody else. And it all starts by just staying here. This is a, the, one of the directors at Spirit Rock, one of the people who uh, has headed Spirit Rock. I won't name names, but she was on retreat with me many years ago and left me a haiku. So we were talking about freedom that night. She says, the sure heart's release goes something like this. Aha, well-being lives here. So in the meantime, it starts with obviously some period every day with sitting quietly, remembering that that we are not just human doings, but we are human beings. And the practice of mindfulness is not just doing mindfulness, but it is being mindful. It's abiding in mindfulness. It's knowing that awareness, being aware, is the most natural thing to us. It is nearer than our breath to be aware. And it's, we simply use all the aspects of our life as activities to help us to abide in awareness. And beside sitting down, being quiet, little bits to longer bits, don't put too many ideas about how long you should sit. You know what Ajahn Chah said, some people think the longer you can sit, the wiser you must be. But he says, I've seen chickens sit on, sitting on their eggs for days on end. <laughs> Maybe they are wise, who knows. But not only do we have to stay where we are, be present, but we also have to tune into the, the causes of suffering, those poisons, every day. One of the most helpful practices that I've been doing for the last many years is primarily, I'll tell you what my general practice is, it's just to be aware of being aware, just resting in awareness. I know that it's home. doesn't have any color, any shape, any height or depth, any beginning or end. It's home. It's our nature, just being aware. It's beyond my name, beyond my form. I, from the perspective of awareness, I'm not even in this moment a man or a teacher, any of these things. I'm just aware. 
That's all I can really say about myself on present evidence, unless I consult my memory. So that's part of it. That's, the, that's my practice, just beware. But the other thing that I, I try to highlight is the attitude of the mind that is aware. The attitude that may be arising in any moment. Noticing whether my mind has an attitude of, of, uh, of straining or grasping or trying to make something happen with the present moment. I want to notice greed in the mind when it's there. Whether there's an attitude of resistance. Do you ever have any of those? But to actually catch it in real time. To notice resistance in the mind. Because that attitude of grasping and resistance or an attitude of, of sizing things up, putting a spin and what it means about me if I'm telling a story about what's going on in the present moment. I want to notice that. I want to see if there's that kind of delusion of, of me in the mind or if I'm just foggy or cloudy. I want to know that. I want to know whether there's aversion in the mind. I want to know whether there's greed in the mind, whether I'm straining to make something happen, whether I, where, I'm, where I've turned the present moment into a pass-through on my way to somewhere else instead of the only, the only place there is. So that attitude of mind will determine whether my life is workable or it's not. It will, it will, those attitudes are what makes the difference whether I suffer in a moment or don't. And I'd like to end with a little general story about wise attitude. At least I'm putting it in the category of wise attitude because I liked it so much. And it was sent to me and encouraging a, a general positive attitude, an open attitude. One day, a farmer's donkey fell down into a well. The animal cried piteously for hours as the farmer tried to figure out what to do. Finally, he decided the animal was old and the well needed to be covered up anyway. It just wasn't worth, worth it to retrieve the donkey. He invited all his neighbors to come over and help him. They all grabbed a shovel and began to shovel dirt into the well. At first, the donkey realized what was happening, happening and cried horribly. Then, to everyone's amazement, he quieted down. A few sho shovel loads later, the farmer finally looked down into the well. He was astonished at what he saw. With each shovel of dirt that hit his back, the donkey was doing something amazing. He would shake it off and take a step up. As the farmer's neighbors continued to shovel dirt on top of the animal, he would shake it off and take a step up. Pretty soon, everyone was amazed that the donkey stepped over the top edge of the well and happily trotted off. So life is going to shovel dirt on you. All kinds of dirt. The trick is getting out of the well is to shake it off and take a step up. But I think you get the point. So let's just sit quietly. And as usual, consider that there, if there's been any 
goodness, any benefit, any fruit, any merit, any anything that has been of benefit that has arisen from our practice that we that we freely offer it to ourselves and all beings everywhere, knowing that we in our immediate direct experience cannot find a dividing line between ourselves and all beings. Reality touches all of us equally. And so we share the blessings of our practice with a deep wish that all beings can have happiness and peace and the causes of happiness and peace increasing. That all beings can be free of suffering and the causes of suffering decreasing. That all beings can recognize the primordial happiness, the sacred happiness that's without sorrow here and now. And that all beings experience that open heart of compassion and the capacity to meet the joys and the sorrows with serenity and equanimity. And a deep wish that our practice today and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all beings. May all beings know for themselves the promise of awakening. May all beings be free. Thank you. You're all free now. And uh, please uh, come on Saturday for the half day. I think we're doing a topic on uh, loving the house that Ego built, maybe. And uh, love to see all of you at the Mindfulness Care Center on Gough Street. Anyway, thank you.